There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 12th of June. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. In just under an hour, the Taoiseach will address the National Economic Forum. The forum will run all day and is the preamble to Budget 2024. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
gives government ministers the chance to address all stakeholders as well as the chance for those attending representing all sectors in society to make their case with government for the measures that they hope to see introduced in the budget. Groups working with the vulnerable and disadvantaged are concerned. 27 groups have issued a joint statement ahead of today's conference calling on government to tackle fuel poverty. It's just one of the many challenges that lie in the year ahead. Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland, is in Dublin Castle now and uh, will be attending uh, the forum when it gets underway at 10 o'clock this morning. A very good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. It's a great opportunity for groups like yours to meet with government and to set out your stall as such. It is in the in the context that we get a, a small amount of time, so that we each get something a, a space to say stuff. Uh, in fact, actually, they've reached, the government has reduced the time available uh, for dialogue this year. Um, so uh, I don't know how strong the dialogue issue is in the national economic dialogue title, but anyway, we'll do our best. Uh, and I. Like what we're basically proposing, first of all, because this isn't supposed to be your detailed budget proposals. These are kind of the big thrust issues that you need to that need to be addressed. And the first of those that we're mm. talking about is that we're proposing that budget 24 uh, should be split into two. And on the one side, um, that we should have a, a situation where one-off tax gains should only be invested in one-off infrastructure projects. So we get these windfall taxes, but we should actually treat them separately and differently. And we should only spend them on one-off infrastructure projects once they're, in other words, projects that once they're built, are built, they don't have to be built again next year. Mm. Uh, and they don't have to be paid for again next year. Mm. And, money, and, and money that doesn't need to be found again next year, I think, exactly. is the point. Uh, because that's exactly. the worry, that you end up spending money that you might not have next year. When, and that's uh, the care that has to be taken. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we are suggesting as well, then, is that the normal budget should be presented using the regular budget process. And that would mean the government could then ensure that the regular budget expenditure funded in 24 and 25 mm. um, it would be re- funded from recurring revenue in other words that it would be they'd be sure that they'd have the money next year and the following year mm. and that so, there'd be no surprises discovering a huge shortfall mm. in revenue like we did before at the crash after the Celtic Tiger. So if you increase welfare by 25 euro next year the following year you'll have at least that uh, for those in receipt of social welfare uh, and you are suggesting to government that they increase welfare for rates by 25 euro. And there's a reason for that. It isn't that we plucked that a, a number out of the sky. We didn't. That number is actually very carefully chosen. It basically meets, it, it covers uh, the, the, the distance we, uh, people on welfare have fallen behind over the last couple of years. And it brings the value of the welfare payment up to what it was uh, a couple of years ago. And that, to do that, it needs about 23 60, something like that, and then we said put a small little bit on to make a gesture at least that you have an interest in um, reducing poverty. So um, that will be a very small amount, but the overall number should be €25 Euro, um, a week. And like last year, it should have been 20 Government gave us 12 uh, There's a shortfall of eight, so that everybody on welfare today... Is eight year eight the, the value of their uh, welfare, although the payment is higher, the value of it is eight euro less than it was this time last year. 
And because, we don't because want to because of the cost of living. That. Yeah, cost of yeah. living went yeah. up. It doesn't. It didn't cover the full cost of living increase. So we don't want any repetitions of that in the coming budget. Mm. Okay, and uh, I don't think it would be unusual in recent years for you to ask the government to build more social housing, uh, and you want a lot more social housing. That's correct. The, the, the thing we've been saying, and I mean, we've discussed it on this program on several occasions. The the situation with regard to social housing is that the government's target is too low to meet the requirement. So even if the government's full uh, housing for all plans were put into place, we'd still be thousands short of the numbers that are required, the number of units, uh, accommodation units that are required. So what we're suggesting is that in this budget, because you have this extra money, um, you, you put an, an additional 1.4 billion on top of what you already had thought about uh, proposed to, to spend there. So an additional 1.4 billion investment in social housing. And what we're talking about is moving the social housing stock up to 20% of all the housing stock in the country. That would bring it up to the European average, which is far below at the moment. At the moment, it's only 9% mm. of, the, of, of the whole housing stock in Ireland, where the European average is 20% of all housing is social housing. Different situation. We need to move in that direction. That's what we're talking about. Right. Um, do people really need social housing? Well, I mean, the uh, bottom line is they obviously need need housing accommodation of some, mm. of some sort. And our approach to it is to say that the best thing for government to be investing its money in is in creating social housing so that people who are currently renting and being supported by the state through the HAP payment, the housing assistance payment, uh, they are... They are they're basically people who can't afford to even pay the full rent on their housing. Mm. So therefore, they should really be in social housing. That's almost the definition of who a person in social housing should be. Okay. So let's put such people in social housing, build enough social housing funding. What that would do then mm. is it would reduce the number uh, who are renting at the moment and with government support. And in that context, then, that should uh, level out the demand for for rental mm. and stop the price rising all the time, which it has been up to now. And the problem up to now has been that the government, because it is supporting poorer people who don't have access to, because there's no social housing there, they give them an additional payment, the HAP payment to help them uh, to rent in the, in the rental market. But what that does, of course, is when there when there's a more a greater demand and there is supply, what happens? The price goes up. So that's what's been happening for quite a while. We need to reverse that. Mm. Simplest way to reverse it: more social housing. That will bring down the people who are in, uh, in, in from rental. It'll transfer people from private rental into so, into social housing, freeing up all that private rental uh, that, that it would then be available uh, mm. for rental to people who actually can pay their way okay. uh, in terms of the rent. And that, that's the way we see it have, as the most efficient way of doing it. But government itself has to become involved in building those houses. Is it a case, though, is it a case though, in some circumstances of giving people a free meal? And the reason I'm asking you that is that the Irish Independent is reporting today that two in five offers of social housing were turned down last year. Now, that's nearly half of the offers made to people. They weren't people uh, that you could describe as desperation. Desperation would mean that you wouldn't turn it down for the reasons that the paper highlights, like not uh, uh, allowing dangerous dogs 
or because motorbikes didn't fit, um, because it didn't have electric car char- charging facilities or there wasn't a, a garden that had a shed or the furniture. These are the reasons people are saying, no, I don't want that house. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll wait to see if you come back with something better. Uh, it's not desperation that's driving those people looking for social housing, is it? Well, I, I'd like to see the real, the, the full uh, gamut of reasons uh, for turning people down. I'd like to see the actual numbers. Well, it's people turning the houses down. That's what I mean. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 people trying houses on. And uh, in reality, this story emerges every year or two, uh, and it's usually in the same kind of thing. And you can you can always, uh, I suppose, suspect that there might be a, a reason or two that would be that would look bizarre, looked on it and so on. And then if that's put up in a headline, the thing looks crazy. The bottom line in it is. We don't have enough accommodation to accommodate all the people in Ireland. We've been very clearly seeing that where refugees are concerned and migrants from from uh, U- Ukraine are concerned. Uh, uh, but it's also true with with uh, our own housing problem. We had this we had this housing shortage before ever there was a war in Ukraine, mm. and the, the issue is that over and over again, government has failed to to recognise the, ch- the scale of the challenge, and when it's putting stuff down then it doesn't come up but it, when it sets its plans it's, its plans aren't big enough to, to actually provide mm. sufficient housing for everybody now the issue about uh, whether people should have a right to uh, refuse the house or not I think my own kind of view would be that they might have been given a, an opportunity or two to refuse but after mm. a certain number you chop it you know mm. and, uh, and, and for certain reasons uh, uh, yeah. like I, I need to go to a, a certain hospital and it's too far away and there's no public transport uh, surely not something like uh, there isn't a charging facility for my electric car I must say that, I must say that was one of the most bizarre because yeah. given the cost of mm. electric cars yeah why are you looking for social housing exactly precisely that would be very few if any Mm. like I I wouldn't I wouldn't expect anybody was able to afford to buy an electric car they've had some success in in County Meath because they're approaching it differently the article in the Irish Independent says in County Meath they have a system now where it seems like they essentially advertise the property so that people on the list can express an interest in it or not and that means that they've reduced the amount of refusals from 30% to 10.5% but that still means that out of 455 offers in County Meath there were 48 refusals it seems quite high, doesn't it, given how difficult it is to get housing in this country? Well, I suppose it does, but again, you have to look at the reasons. Like, if the, if the accommodation isn't sufficient for the number of people that are going to be in there, or if, it, if there's, I, I heard one of the reports this morning saying that the, the, the rooms were very small, for example, so if you had a number of adults living in the house, it might be that the actual house itself was too small, uh, while it might actually be very good for other people. You know the way mm. uh, the way houses are built as well. Like a, a large proportion of the people on waiting lists now are single uh, males, single females, and like that, they they don't need the kind of scale of house that a family with a few children would need. So you have to kind of look at it that way and go through it and, and see see the whole thing is done properly, if you know what I mean. Mm. So that so that like it, they're appropriate. There's no like we've been going on for a while that that like you, you people are looking for appropriate houses. People are not looking for excessive stuff. Okay. So the problem is government hasn't been building appropriate houses for a lot of people for a long time. If you know what I mean. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yep, no, I think so. Um, you have three other issues. Uh, we've mentioned two of them. Uh, Sláinte Care, 
uh, offshore wind energy uh, uh, and uh, our climate uh, uh, challenges, uh, I suppose, are the banners that they they come under, Sean, yeah. Yeah, I I suppose the the offshore wind energy is is a huge issue now, and we're basically suggesting that a billion of the additional money that's available be made available to accelerate existing plans. Now, that's an additional billion on top of what they're planning already and basically trying to secure our renewable energy infrastructure and meet our climate targets, if you know what I mean. Mm. And then on the official development assistance, well, there's a problem here uh, that needs to be addressed because government has been putting the climate finance, the ODA and the damage fund and official, uh, uh, sorry, the loss and damage fund into one big law uh, fund. And it's basically saying, when, any, when they're ever asked about what's the, what are they doing for the climate finance, that's the fund. Whether they're doing for ODA, that's the fund. Whether mm. they're doing for loss and damage fund, that's the fund. But in actual fact, they're giving us no idea of how it's broken down. So I think what we're saying basically is, give us a one-off billion euro allocation. It won't, that won't affect inflation here or anything like that because the situation here is fine. In that, in that context, what we, have, what we can do is good. Um, uh, and uh, it, all the money will be, will be going out of the country mm-hmm. uh, to, to help those uh, poor and poorer than ourselves, particularly in Africa. And if that's the case, then uh, we can give it a billion. It won't have any impact on the uh, on the inflation situation or our fiscal policy of the situation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But do it and give us then break down these three areas uh, so that we see what actually is happening under each of them uh, because at the end of the day we've made commitments under all three and we should be meeting our commitments under all three headings there the official de- 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 development assistance the mm. climate finance and the loss and damage fund okay uh, you mentioned uh, uh, some concern that you have about how the dialogue will be going in one direction uh, this morning because of a change in the format which will see ministers make speeches and you'll be sitting listening to those speeches for a large part. Uh, this is a, a change that has resulted uh, in one of uh, these forums going back a, a number of years uh, when uh, there was two-way dialogue uh, and there was an awful showdown between yourself and Robert Watt. Do you believe you're responsible for that change? <laughs> they didn't want to be hearing what we had to say. Uh, what, what they have is they have breakouts. Uh, like I've been at this since the, since the government created this idea about 10 years ago, uh, National Economic Dialogue. And um, in, in the beginning, we used to have the, we'd always have the speeches from all of the various ministries. But when that was over, we would then all have our opportunity to sort of present ideas or key issues that we felt should be covered in the budget, not, not the individual amounts of uh, of the detailed budget, budget pre-budget submission like that we'll be coming within a few weeks' time. But the kind of general things I was talking about here, and we we got ahead. Two things happened then. All the government ministers heard you, not just the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Housing, everybody heard you. And the second thing is, all the other social partners, like the employees of the trade unions and the our own community and voluntary pillar, obviously, but also uh, the environmental pillar, the farming pillar. And people like the person sitting beside me here today is, is, is in this uh, round table, uh, is, as which the minister is sitting, the person sitting beside me is Gabriel McLoof, uh, the, the governor of the central bank. Mm. And like, it's important for people like him to hear. Now, what the problem is that what they've done is they only have breakouts. One, you get into one breakout with uh, one minister. So I, I'll be in the breakout with the Minister for Finance. Now, uh, Claire Dennis from our uh, team will be in a, in a direct 
same dialogue with the Minister for Housing and, and Michelle Murphy will be in a direct dialogue with the Minister for Environment. But there are still six or seven ministers here that we, we won't be able to cover the, their, the issues uh, with, that they want to hear about and that we want them to hear about from us. But also, no employers, trade unions, all these people, none of them is going to have their most idea what our position is on anything. Okay. Except because the few that will be at, at, at our breakout. Okay. You know? So right. that's, that's a negative. Okay. I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a, a lot from Dublin Castle throughout the day. But thank you, as I say, for joining us Glad in advance of the forum this morning. Thank, thank you. you very much indeed. Sean Healy is uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. The Irish Refugee Council is publishing a report called Now I Live on the Road Today. It tells the story of almost 1,400 people, 13,000. Uh, 651 applicants uh, to the country and of that uh, 1,400 people uh, who had to sleep on the road after travelling a very long road indeed uh, to this country uh, only to find themselves with no place to go and on uh, the streets of uh, Dublin to fend for themselves. Nick Henderson is uh, the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. A very good morning to you Nick and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, You've described this as a new low for the government. Yes, it, it, it is a new low, and I think we spoke to you in the autumn of last year, Michael, around the, the ongoing deterioration in standards for accommodating people seeking asylum in Ireland. We've gone from direct provision to long-term use of hotels, then to the convention centre in City West to tents, and then finally in January, uh, the government announced that they could no longer accommodate people in the City West Convention Centre and that no other accommodation would be available and uh, people, in effect, would be sleeping rough. And since that time, almost 1,400 people have been forced into homelessness, some of them up to a period of 10 weeks. Now, uh, at its highest point, there was 593 people seeking protection who were experiencing homelessness. That was at the beginning of May. And that number has uh, decreased. We welcome that decrease down to about 70 as of Friday. Mm. But we would have concerns that in the coming weeks and months, there is going to be an ongoing uh, risk of homelessness uh, in the absence of any long-term capacity. I was of the impression that um, it it was just men um, who were not from Ukraine uh, who were told we've nowhere to accommodate you, uh, but there were three pregnant women uh, uh, amongst uh, the 14,000 people. Yeah, predominantly... And and four children, four children though, sorry. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Predominantly affecting single men, but also affecting uh, women and couples and the four children. We worked with... Uh, and had contact with three women who were pregnant and in the circumstances of those children, it was four children that we've worked with. Uh, All four were applied for asylum, uh, were referred by the International Protection Office to the Child and Family Agency, TUSLA. Uh, They had an assessment for services under the Child Cares Act. They were found not to be children Uh, and they were then, they left that, that service and went to sleep on the street 
Uh, and then for two of those children, they were subsequently found to be children and were taken into care. And then for the two other children, they were placed in, they were, they were homeless and then placed into adult accommodation uh, and have submitted evidence to show that they, they are a child. So mm. though, for those four children, I think it's the most representative and emblematic uh, feature of this very serious crisis. Yeah, you said some applicants uh, waiting... 10 weeks uh, mm. to be given somewhere to uh, live, uh, some uh, sort of, of refuge where they could feel safe. Can, one of those, uh, was homeless on the streets for 73 days. It, it, it's an incredible experience, I imagine, for anybody to live a, on the streets for any amount of time, let alone 10 weeks. Is it safe? It's not safe in our opinion. It, sh- it cannot be safe for anybody to sleep on the streets. Uh, uh, and it's particularly not safe for people seeking asylum, and that was shown at the beginning of May when there was the, the protests, for want of a better phrase, out at Sandrith Street where people who were sleeping in tents were directly confronted by people who can be described as the, the far right, certainly. Certainly there was members of the far right within that, that, that protest. Uh, and then the following that evening, uh, Friday evening, there was two protests. The Friday evening, the tent, their tents were, they left, the asylum seekers left and the tents were burnt. And then the next day, there was a march to the International Protection Office and there was direct confrontation with people there. If it's not uh, safe, I take it it's less safe for pregnant women and children. Well, exactly. Um, the idea of a child being on the streets is, you know, it's horrifying, ultimately. Uh, from any background, but a child who's here alone with nothing, uh, very little information, very little support, particularly at the beginning of this, of this crisis in January and February. Mm-hmm. Things have slightly improved uh, in, in May in terms of accessing financial supports with which somebody can try to live. But ultimately, it's a, it's a really disturbing situation. And a lot of the people that you spoke to who now live on the road, as your report is titled, have serious challenges. Uh, you say that you came across dozens of people with serious physical and mental health conditions. Yeah, people seem to have had, if they've had a health condition on arrival, it's been worsened by the fact that they've had to, to sleep rough. People also expressing serious concerns to us about their mental health, including suicidal ideation, people uh, with respiratory issues. And remember, this began in January. Uh, so for January, February and March, it was relatively cool. There was the cold weather initiative and on March the 10th by the government that, that people in this situation weren't eligible for that. Um, so deter- deteriorating health conditions uh, because of having to sleep rough. Um, and then there's also the other experiences around things like just feeling completely lost when they arrived, the destitution that people experienced, um, life on the street. You know, one person at least was was assaulted, difficulty in uh, paying for public transport and having to move around the city as well. Mm. Mm. Did they find themselves begging or how did they survive? In our experience, it was a bit of everything. People were able to avail, particularly during Ramadan, from some mosques who supported them. People uh, tried to get support from shops that 
community a community shop for example uh, people were also had to contact and use the help of strangers which can be very helpful but also puts people at quite a risk of um, there's a power imbalance there obviously mm-hmm. um, and then also and in particular people had to access existing homeless services in Dublin mm-hmm. who are themselves already very overstretched uh, organisations like the Caption Day Centre Mendicity Institution Crosscare and Focus Island Cafe for example people, mm-hmm. people use those services Does it have to be like this? Uh, I mean we saw the government last week uh, decide to pay one and a half million euro to the Solidarity Fund uh, because it says Ireland is full uh, we didn't expect as many people to come to the country as did after the uh, invasion of Ukraine and the increase in international protection applicants in line with that so they paid one and a half million euro uh, for someone else uh, to do the job it had committed to which was to provide people with refuge uh, we're in a situation where almost 14 Hundreds people have had to sleep in the streets because the government couldn't uh, accommodate them. Does it have to be like this? Uh, it, it was February 2021 uh, when the Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, and, for example, we were told we'd have modular housing last November. Now we're hearing we'll have it at the end of next year. Yeah, February 2022 when the Russians invaded. So we, we have forecast, unfortunately, and I think the government themselves have forecast that there would be significant problems. Uh, And as I began with, we, in our report last autumn, forecast that there was this deterioration and that the next step in this deterioration would just be homelessness. Um, It doesn't have to be like that, um, but we do need things to change. Uh, Just a small sort of example of something that should change is the support of the Department of Housing, which at both ends of this process, so when people arrive and are homeless, we haven't been able to get anything from the Department of Housing. And then at the end of the asylum process, there's almost 5,000 people who are recognised refugees or have subsidiary protection or permission to remain but cannot leave direct provision because of the wider housing crisis. And if the Department of Housing were able to take responsibility for for either the beginning, people in homelessness, or at the end, people with status, that would that would be a positive step. If you were able to create a, a additional capacity of 5,000 beds, this issue would be dealt with overnight. But as it stands, it's really difficult, as we've spoken about before, Michael, and mm. your listeners will know, most of all, there is a very acute housing crisis which we, we acknowledge and recognise. It was, it's always going to be difficult. This is an exceptional moment. As you say, the Russian invasion of Ukraine coincided with a huge movement of people across Europe and then also an increase in the number of asylum seekers. Mm. But you need to be, we need to be putting in place big decisions. Now, we were saying we should be making these decisions last spring, but they need to be made now to avoid further problems on into the year. And last spring, you were saying you needed an all-of-government response. You were saying you needed a, a specific role to oversee all of the different strands to this very complicated challenge. And today, some 18 months on, you're saying the same thing. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so we did our we did several reports last year. We did recommendations around how to bring on stream accommodation for refugees from Ukraine. There's a huge reliance on hospitality accommodation, um, which isn't healthy for anybody. Neither the refugees living in it, or the people, or um, the local communities, tourism, for example. 
Uh, and as I said, we do project and predict that there will be ongoing homelessness over the summer and the autumn. It may be for short periods of time. It may not be so acute as it's been in recent months. But unless we can bring in that extra capacity that we need all of government mm. to deliver, it's going to continue. If we can't and if it's going to continue because we haven't the wherewithal to do the job, uh, is it better that we pay someone else to do it, that we pay the one and a half million as the case was last week or the next uh, step in that process, if you like, uh, which is uh, what was uh, agreed in Luxembourg last week, uh, that countries will pay 20,000 euro for each person they turn away. Yeah. um, There's two different things going on there. The first is that Ireland voluntarily opted into a solidarity, what's called a solidarity mechanism in June last year. And it, I recognise the situation the department, the government is in, but it is of dismay that at the first time of asking, we choose to pay ourselves out of this issue. And bearing in mind that there are other countries in Europe that are dealing front and central with this issue to a much, much greater extent than us, Italy and Greece, for example. Mm. What was agreed, what was spoken about last week is, is, is a much more wide ranging and it would be a mandatory solidarity mechanism. It's still quite a long way to go there. Now those negotiating positions agreed by the member states have to go to the European Parliament for, mm. for approval. Uh, but we are looking at a radical change. The, the, the other thing to conclude with maybe is also Ireland has the option of option, opting in or out of mm. these instruments. We have, we have an opt-out, so it's not entirely clear yet whether they will opt in. Uh, and uh, I think it's worth pointing out as well that if we do opt in, we'd be paying a lot more than we did uh, with that one and a half million. Uh, that breaks uh, down to just over 4,000 per person instead of 20,000 per person. If we were to go at that rate of 20,000 per person for the 350 people, that would equate to 7 million euro instead of what we did pay, which was one and a half million euro. Yeah, but it, they are still proposals. Um and it is, I suppose, what the, the European Union is trying to do here is to make sure that member states do live up to the promise of solidarity, mm. that, that there's been this wide-ranging problem and persistent problem with European asylum policies that countries, and it may feel like Ireland is on in a pressure, pressureful place at the moment, and it, to a certain extent it is, but we're, we're not compared to other countries. Mm, and we've and that, so many empty buildings in every indeed. corner of the country. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So it, it's, it's an attempt, I suppose, by the member states, to by the European Council and the Commission to try and persuade member states to actually live up to the idea of, of solidarity. It's not easy, and but there is still a long way to go. It has to now go to the European Parliament. Okay, Nick, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's Nick Henderson, who is uh, the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. Call Michael now. 041-983-2000. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, thanks uh, to Frank NRD, one of uh, the people in touch with us uh, today. By the way, 0419832000 if you want to make comment, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Frank, a hard-working man, sick to the gills, he says, of these moaners and groaners with their poor mouths on looking for social housing. Why do I have to go to work every day and spend all of my hard-earned earnings on a mortgage? 
which leaves me with little or nothing at the end of the week in order to put a roof over my family's head when people are turning down social houses handed to them on a plate because there isn't a charger for their electric car. Sick of it. Where's the sense in that? Deirdre and Kells in touch with us saying that there should be buses from Drogheda to Kells. If you have to go to Drogheda, you have to get a bus from Kells to Navan and then on to Drogheda. Doesn't make sense. Thanks, Deirdre. Stephen in Drogheda says these e-bikes are causing problems everywhere, especially on the footpath on West Street. When you're walking, you wouldn't know who's behind you until it's too late. Gardaí need to act straight away but they're never around on West Street. Thanks Stephen for that. Uh, I think uh, there probably are some questions about e-bikes and uh, the regulations uh, that uh, are not in place yet but uh, will at some stage be in place because of uh, the tragic death of a teenager in Tala last week after riding into a, a pillar. Uh, I certainly uh, think it's something uh, that uh, people should be looking at it in terms of their own safety as to whether they're wearing helmets and where they ride it and how they ride it for that matter. Uh, we've somebody else in touch with us asking why is the government not forcing energy companies to reduce their prices? It's a scandal that they're allowed to rip off people and when they do that, that causes people to go into poverty. Thank you very much indeed. Apparently the boss um, the energy, uh, the gas or whatever it is uh, two months ago so it might be a lot cheaper to buy it today but when they bought it it was more expensive and that's why you're being charged uh, uh, much higher than uh, you would hope it would be the case given the huge reductions uh, internationally uh, at least that's what we're told um, we'd Rose Toomey in touch with us uh, towards the end of uh, last week's programme as we were going off air she rang to say that her, her sister had booked her mother's NCT last October it was due in December and she only got an appointment in April because of the backlog now we're all pretty familiar with the backlog but she has to book another NCT this year because it'll be due again in December and they called up the NCT centre and they were told that there's a priority button when you're booking online and if you tick the priority button you'll get an appointment within 28 days she wants to highlight that to you if you're listening uh, instead of you having to pay twice in one year uh, she think everybody should be aware of this priority button on the website if you press that you are a priority case uh, she says you get your NCT test within 28 days thank you very much indeed uh, Rose for that as I say our telephone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie uh, to some snail mail as it's called now a letter that came to me last week uh, and one that I'll read to you in part uh, I will have to uh, redact uh, some of the information in it because the letter is very very disturbing it's upsetting to me uh, to read uh, the conditions that some people are living under and the way that they're being treated uh, for that matter but there is no way of verifying the facts of the contents of this letter uh, because it's signed uh, by a Ukrainian, a number of Ukrainian residents um, who have not given us uh, their names or contact details probably because they're afraid of being identified but having said that we cannot verify the contents of this but uh, I don't know. Um, it, it is very concerning to think that this is true. It says we, the Ukrainian people who are, are, are living 
um, in a communal place wish to make an official complaint of the treatment that we receive uh, from the management. It's difficult to describe how they treat us on a daily basis. If we ask a question or complain, we are mocked and ridiculed. We are threatened by them. One of them threatens us with eviction and the other threatens us with Gardi, Tusla or eviction. They've evicted some residents and given many warning letters for no good reason. We know that they cover their tracks with lies and dishonesty because uh, they have no... Uh, way of being questioned and we have no hope in proving the dictatorship uh, that we now live under. We, the Ukrainian residents, are grateful for the help that the Irish government has given us. We cannot thank you enough and we are thankful for the staff uh, who work with us. They try to help us quietly uh, without the management knowing. Every day we see women coming out of the office crying. And now we can see the staff who try to help us crying, uh, and they're sad every single day. We're bullied and called names. I've been called a Ukrainian bitch by one of them, and my friend a Nazi by another one of them. I don't know if Irish people find Nazi bad, but to Ukrainian people, we find it to be offensive and racist. And my, I was called an ungrateful Ukrainian bitch uh, was because I asked if I could move to another room. Summing up, we want to say that many of the employees uh, who work with us are also suffering because of the way they're being treated and because of how they've tried to help when residents have come to them for help. In all cases known to me, when residents asked management for help, they were verbally mocked, ridiculed and refused the help that they asked for. As I say, uh, I, I can't verify the contents of that, so we're not going to uh, give any more detail on uh, the areas or the people who are being complained about. Uh, but thanks to those who did send that letter to us. And uh, if you do want to contact us so that we can contact you, send us a telephone number or something like that, we would love to hear from you. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, a data protection impact assessment which was carried out on public services cards by the consultancy group KPMG for the Department of Social Protection begs many questions about the legality of the public services card. The document was obtained by two groups that is the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and Digital Rights Ireland. We're joined by Anton O'Loughnan of Digital Rights Ireland and a very good morning to you Anton and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've a lot of questions about the public services card. I think you've had a lot of questions for a long period of time but let's talk about the photograph of people on these cards. Uh, there could very well be a legal problem with that photograph. Yeah, there's a legal problem because the GDPR has special protections for something like a photograph which allows you to be, that is designed to allow you to be identified, which is exactly what this photograph uh, on the public services card uh, is for, and which they, they undoubtedly say that, and they make it quite clear in all their documentation that the Social, Department of Social Protection puts out that that's the purpose of the photograph. But they don't accept that it's biometric data and they've subjected it to, even though it's very explicit in GDPR that it is, it is biometric data, and they've subjected it to um, biometric uh, analysis and, uh, and processing um, without any legal basis for, for doing that. And the, 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 the biometric analysis they do is basically about identifying a person 
from the photograph. So the significance of all this is really, you know, there's a bigger picture of this beyond social protection. The bigger significance is we hear about the use of body cams and the use of face recognition by the Garda and the plans for that. Well, that's what this is really about. The same thing. This is about the same thing. It's about having a database of photographs that could be used in various ways. Mm. And one way it could be used is to identify people off CCTV um, or off other photographs or body cams or whatever it is uh, and, and used to go from... From the from the from the face, if you like, to the name. All right. So, uh, if a fellow's seen robbing a bank, running out uh, with his uh, fellow raiders uh, and caught on CCTV, uh, they'll be cross-checking that image against the photographs that they have, uh, which would include these public service card photographs. That, well, that's the potential because there's no clear legal limits now on how the public services card biometric database is being used. The way it's being used as described in the DPIA is not legal. There is simply no legal basis for it, for the matching that they're doing at the moment. So the question is, could that, does that not leave the way open for it to be used in even more ways? So mm-hmm. that if, so that if the Garda, for example, bring photographs to the Department of Social Protection, that will the Department of Social Protection simply use them to, um, to identify those persons from the PSC database. And from what we can see from the way the Department of Social Protection is claiming, there is nothing now to stop them. If, if, that's what they, if, if that's what they feel they need to do, if they think that's the right thing to do, there doesn't seem to be any real protection to, mm. uh, you know, to stop that. Okay, uh, explain to me what not being legal means, if you don't mind, Anton. Okay. Uh, ca- ca- can they do that if it's not legal? It, it, it's not in principle... In, always illegal. illegal to process right. biometric data by any means. Mm. You know, it is. It is. There is exemptions in the in the GDPR in certain circumstances in which, in particular, the government can use biometric data. But what it, but what the GDPR says is that it has to be explicitly laid out in the law of the country. You know, it has to be explicitly stated what processing can be carried out and for what purposes. And in the case of the public services card. That has never been done. The purpose of the processing has never been laid down in law. And the processing that is allowed, this biometric processing that's allowed, has never been laid out in law. And that's why it's illegal, because it hasn't been explicitly provided for in the written law. Mm. Okay, but uh, that doesn't mean that it can't be done. No, it's absolutely the case that that there could be a law about biometric processing for for photographs. That is absolutely something that could be that could be done. But the appropriate way to do that is for it to be debated in the Oireachtas and for there to be proper legislation to be brought in to do it, and for them to be clear controls on how it's done and when it's done and who has access to it, and to avoid scope creep. You know, for the database that was originally designed for one purpose beginning to be used, you know, for another Mm. purpose. Okay, uh, and that at a minimum, people should understand how their photograph could potentially be used. For sure, and that's one of the criticisms that um, KPMG made was that uh, it wasn't really made clear to people what biometric processing would be done on the photographs that they provided whenever they registered for the public services card. And KPMG advised the government it should be concerned about this, uh, that it runs the risk of reputational damage. Yeah, yeah, it it runs the risk that, you know, that people will lose confidence in these public services. 
you know, and in innovations and in developments in the digital area, because there isn't a clear framework for regulating the whole thing. And if something if something goes wrong, you know, people will feel unsafe with the systems, and they'll try to avoid and evade the systems. And um, so, you know, it's it's more than reputational damage, as in you know something bad happened. Mm. It's that it will deter the use of these systems if there isn't full trust in them. And to have trust in them, there have to be regulations and there have to be controls. And at the moment, there aren't. And transparency. I mean, people uh, don't like to feel as though somebody's trying to pull the wool over their eyes. Uh, yeah, that's that's the case. And a lot of this stuff seems to happen without a lot of public notice. Mm. You know, it kind of happens. It's a bit cloak and dagger, you know, but there's yeah. no need for this kind of secrecy about what's going on. You know, if it's just public administration, there should be no great secret about it. There's no reason not to be transparent about it. Um, what's being done and uh, how it's being done. Okay, and if the department isn't transparent, why is it not being transparent? Is the department, is the government trying to pull the wool over our eyes? Is the public services card the first step towards a national identity card? So, it does seem that this is a a public, this is a national identity card in a public name. And it does seem that that the government is reluctant to bring forward legislation for a national identity card. They think people would resist that, I think. And people would be very reluctant about it and it would take a long time to legislate it. So I think they see this as a sort of a shortcut in doing things kind of by the back door, by small incremental measures, bringing in this rule and then that rule. And then gradually over time, they end up with what is effectively a national identity mm. card. And it ends up being too much bother. You could say people are being discriminated against because they don't have this card, but people might just feel it's too much bother to try and uh, get what I'm trying to get. Uh, I'm not sure if it still applies to passports, but you certainly need uh, a public services card or you'd be far quicker doing uh, a lot of things with a public services card than without one. Uh, is that the kind of frustration and throwing your hand in and saying, oh, I resist it, yeah. I'll get one now because it's too much hassle without one. That's it. That, that people are put under pressure as well to get one, you know, that in various ways. It's the model of, of um, um, as a previous minister said, of being mandatory without being compulsory. Mm. So in practice, you have to get it, even though in principle there's some way to avoid getting it. Mm. But, but really, the way it's going is that there's another service called MyGovID, which is tied to the public services card, you know, for logging into things online, which has no provision whatsoever in the law. There is nothing in the law about MyGovID, even though it's a central part of the government's digital strategy. There's no provision. It's not mentioned anywhere in, in, in the law of the country. Um, but, but, and it's completely dependent on this uh, biometric identification scheme. And that's not, that's not right. That's not the way things should be done. There should mm. be a clear legal basis for, for systems that you have to sign up with for in practice mm. in order to um, in order to access public services. Is it all bad? Uh, I mean, uh, do people have anything to be worried uh, about if uh, they are to be biometrically identified? Uh, is that not something for gangsters to be worried about? Uh, surely normal people who have nothing to hide uh, have no reason to be suspicious of uh, the public services card or a national identity card. Um, well, first of all, there's two, there's two parts to that. The first part is that um, that it should be it should be banned, it should be controlled under a legal framework. You know, there should be a system controlling how how biometric identification like that is done and what it's actually used for. You know, there should be an explicit framework. And the problem with it is that 
that, that it's the, the way these things go is that there's another thing that goes on besides gangsters who are already known, you know, criminals who are already known. It's used to profile people to find out if they might be criminals or to see if they have associations with criminals or with with uh, with persons of interest. So it's not just the person, the person themselves. It's all the person. You know, it's not just the 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 person of interest themselves that is biometrically identified. It's all the persons around them. The system can be building up a pattern, just as you see on Facebook, it builds up a pattern of the things you seem to be interested in, the things you seem to look look at on the on the internet most, and then it customizes your feed or your advertising to match that. That you can build up, you can use this information to build up a profile of where a person is going, who they're meeting, and what their likely activities are, what their political affiliations might be, what their religious affiliations might be, and so on. And that's what the problem is with these with these systems is that they aren't just used for those points of identifying, as you say, persons of interest, criminals or suspects. Um, they, you know, in practice, they end up being used to identify lots of other people as well. Mm. And is that okay? Well, it depends on the circumstances, but it needs to be very carefully managed and very carefully considered. It can't. It's not something that can just be can just be done willy-nilly without a, without a legal framework. Mm, okay. The doll resumes uh, this uh, week after last week's break. I uh, imagine uh, there will be some pressure on government to act on this uh, and introduce uh, the necessary legislation. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a packed legislative. There's a, you know, there's, you know it's, it's packed the amount of legislation that's coming up. It's very hard to add new legislation to that system. And this isn't something that could be done very quickly. It's something that needs some consideration and some thought. The same as the as the uh, the um, biometric, the face recognition, and the video recording by the Garda. It, mm. It's not something to they're rush going, into. They're not going to withdraw the public services cards now, though, are they? I'm sorry. They, they, I mean, uh, whilst that process is underway, if it does get underway, they're not going to withdraw the public services card. We're going to have the situation where we have these cards that uh, have no legal basis. Sure, and uh, yeah, we'll continue to have the have these cards most likely. But you know, the, the, and that, that's fine until if something goes wrong, if there's some uh, data breach problem, or there's some uh, there's some other problem, and the whole thing will come under the will come under the highlight, and it'll mm. be very hard questions to ask about why something was allowed to go on uh, while it was. Well, you know, while it was known to be illegal. Okay. In, in a report commissioned by the government, uh, which has said exactly that. Anton, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Anton O'Loughnan of Digital Rights Ireland. 086-1800-658. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. When is the minimum wage not the minimum wage? Uh, well, oddly enough, it's not the minimum wage if you're under 20. You get less than the minimum wage, at least less than the minimum wage that you get at the age of 20 and over 20 years of age. For that matter, legislation goes before the doll this week. It'll be tabled by people before profit and it will hope to result in all people being paid the minimum wage and the same minimum wage at that. Uh, let's uh, speak to John O'Donnell, Mandate Industrial Officer. Good morning to you, John. Thank you in- indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I know Mandate is uh, supporting this legislation. Tell us what the situation is currently for people under the age of 20. 
Uh, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, currently, if you are aged under 18, uh, you're paid at €7.91, which is 70% of the minimum wage. If you're 18, you're paid €9.04, which is 80% of the minimum wage. And if you're 19, you're paid 10.17, which is 90% of the minimum wage. Okay. Uh, and uh, the minimum wage now stands at 11... Um, 11.30. 11.30. Uh, yeah. So the idea of this legislation is that all workers, 16, 17, 18, regardless of their age, uh, that they'd be paid the 11.30 at a minimum. Yes, that's it. And I suppose the key message is all workers, regardless of age, deserve equal pay for equal work. Mm, okay. Uh, is it equal work? And I think that's the argument uh, that employers put up, that it's not equal work, uh, that essentially you're talking about teenagers, uh, most of them still at school, and this is giving them a start, start that they wouldn't get otherwise, uh, and a start that gives them experience moving forward in life. Well, yeah, I, yes, that is the argument um, made by employers. But the fact is, when you're looking at it, the majority of these young people will be working maybe either in retail or hospitality. So it could be they could be in shops, they could be in garages, could be in coffee shops, bars. The fact is, right, yes, there are going to be people who are there that have more experience, right? That's not, there's no denying that. But those people, 90% of the time, you would hope, are on a progressive scale. So obviously with their experience, they would have been paid more. But these young people are still serving the likes of myself and yourself on a till. Mm. They're still packing shelves. They're still doing the exact same as their colleagues. Mm. And the unfortunate thing is the existence of these rates encourage some businesses to take advantage of not just the young people, but the longer serving members of staff by reducing the hours of the long-term staff and hiring more workers on the sub-minimum rates which in itself causes unnecessary tension mm. between the young people who are just starting off looking for a job and the existing staff. Okay, and if you get a start at 20 years of age with no experience whatsoever, you're on 11.30 an hour minimum, uh, whereas that's 7.91 if uh, you're under the age uh, of 18. Uh, you, you, you work with a, a lot of uh, low-paid, you represent a lot of low-paid workers. Uh, are many of them uh, under 20 or under 18 for that matter? Uh, and are they, uh, of, uh, are they going to school if they're under 18, for example? Uh, a lot of our younger members would be um, would be college students. Some, some not, but a, a, a large number would be college students, or some have just come out of school. But there, what we find is the majority of them are not just working for pocket money. Like yeah. they're making a major contribution to their own households if they're living expenses if they're at home, mm. or if they are in fact living on their own, they're paying rent, student fees and so on, and have the same bills as we do. And unfortunately, um, landlords won't accept 70% of rent. So I, mm. that's the situation they're causing. And I think that probably is uh, the difference uh, between uh, school-going children, uh, if they're living at home with mum and dad, um, you say that it'll contribute to the household uh, and uh, perhaps uh, it's needed by the family. Uh, but it's a different situation, isn't it, uh, for uh, most people going to college if uh, they're not living at home. They have very expensive lives these days. Absolutely, yeah. And if you, I mean, if you look even at our, our college fees, we have one of the 
the highest college fees in our in Europe. Mm. Ireland does so. I mean, they're counterbalancing that, and obviously the same that everybody else is dealing with in a minute, which with this cost of living crisis. Okay. You know, so it's even more difficult for them, and and creating more stress on them, which is completely unnecessary. And you and uh, people for profit would argue uh, that the uh, law that governs the minimum wage uh, discriminates against young people. Could it not be argued that it, it discriminates in favour of them? Because uh, if employers couldn't pay these lower rates of pay, they wouldn't get the job. Well, I've personally, we believe that we we've seen such a high turnover. I can speak specifically about the retail sector here yeah. now. Right, mm-hmm. there's been such a um, a high turnover rate in the retail sector in the past number in the past I would suppose really twelve to twenty four months. It's the highest we've ever seen it. So like what we have seen is most employers, there are a few outliers, have realised right wages is actually what's going to help us keep people in work mm. now and that's what they're moving towards because they are saying if their wages aren't up to par, there's a such a choice there. For people to move around, so I think that's where that argument kind of it falls. You know, I think it, it's in, when that argument is used, it's cost saving. It, it's a cost saving excuse, is what an employer is using to do it mm. because the profits are still there and everything else is still there. Yeah. There's nothing to back up saying, "Oh, well, we can't we can't hire them if we're paying." This. Yeah, why why would I take on a, a 16 year old at the same rate of pay as I would a 23 year old? Uh, think the argument you're making is you won't get either at the moment because yeah, exactly. uh, we, we've got full employment it's uh, impossible to get staff uh, and uh, there's nobody out of work who wants to be in work in, in uh, this country which is uh, an unusual and fantastic position for young people uh, and all of us uh, to be in for that matter. Uh, I'm not sure that there's uh, broad support for this legislation is there? Well we, from what we've heard since the press conference last week there's a there seems to be a fair bit of traction across across the board from a number of parties. Um, so we're, we're hopeful, we're extremely hopeful, but I think it should be worth noting as well, like a number of months ago, the current T-shirt announced that our move towards living wage and it has stated that a living wage is needed uh, to put a roof over your head and food on your table and it's not influenced by your age rate. So in our opinion, the government has to support this bill because it's a small step towards a living wage or they'll expose their words as, as cheap headlines. Mm, or uh, they may be uh, reluctant or may make the argument that it'll feed into the cost of living uh, because uh, you're putting more money into the economy, put more people will have more disposable income uh, and it'll also lead uh, to pressures on employers because it, it won't just be the increase in wages, uh, they'll have to pay more in PSRI and holiday pay and so on. Yeah, I can't. I, I'm more than expecting those arguments to, <laughs> okay. to come across the board. Mm. It's, it's, they won't wash with you, John. <laughs> they won't wash with me myself, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I've been yeah. doing this for too long and I've, yeah. I've heard most of the excuses that are out there. So. Okay. All right. Uh, well, it'll be thrashed out uh, this week. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear all of the excuses, uh, as you put it, and indeed to the arguments uh, for introducing this legislation, uh, which is being tabled by Paul Murphy, who will be speaking to in a, a few moments. But thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us uh, this morning, John, and uh, for joining us on the programme. John O'Donnell, Mandate Industrial Officer. 086 1800 658. 
Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, Damien English, Finnegale TD in Mead West made a planning application, as you probably know, back in 2008 to Mead County Council. He wanted to build a new home for his family in Cookstown in Kells in County Mead. Uh, on his application form, he said that the applicant, Damien English, does not own a dwelling and has not owned a dwelling previously. But Damien English was lying uh, because he was the owner of uh, a house in Castle Martin in County Meath. Uh, as a result of uh, that, uh, Damien English was disgraced and forced to leave office as a Minister of State, but continues to be a TD on a salary of close to €110,000. Yesterday, the Sunday Independent reported uh, that despite lying on his application to Mead County Council for a family home, that SIPO, uh, the Standards in Public Office, has said that a complaint made to it by People for Profit TD, Paul Murphy, uh, was not of sufficient gravity for it to investigate. Paul Murphy is on the line and uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. This surprised you, I understand. Good morning, Michael. Um, y- yeah, it surprised me and disappointed me. Um, this is open and shut. Um, so in, in, in lying on the planning application and then in covering up the fact that he did own this other house, which he was no longer living in, from 2010 and he then did something else which was not in order to cover that up he didn't declare that other property on his register of members interests so every year as a TD you have to talk about you have to register the property that you own apart from the home that you live in you don't have to declare that but he was no longer living in that from 2010 and didn't declare it and still hasn't declared it actually up until uh, this point as far as I can tell from the most up-to-date um, the, um, register of members' interests. That's a breach of the ethics legislation which is clear about the requirement for TDs to declare any properties other than the family home um, and yes, you know, and it was such a severe breach in general that he was forced to resign and yes, the ethics watchdog that is empowered to investigate these things says that the issue isn't, or the complaint isn't of sufficient gravity to warrant further investigation. They do a kind of preliminary investigation and then decide whether they're going to investigate or not, and so they've decided not to investigate, and I think it it speaks very poorly of the the powers and resources of Zippo if that you can't have an investigation in such circumstances. Or what is this? Does it talk about uh, the powers um, that Zippo has, or, or does it talk about the standards that are expected of people in public office? That that's true. I mean, um, like this sufficient gravity thing, I have a problem with. You know, I think if ministers are breaching the ethics legislation, uh, kind of no matter how much over the line they are, I think that's significant. And I think our ethics watchdog should be looking into it as opposed to saying, well, implicitly that's a breach, but it's not that bad of a, of a breach. I don't think we should be accepting that. Um, because I think the public um, and the electorate in particular 
have a right to know what happened here um, and they would be best served by having Zippo carry out an investigation and then publish the results of that investigation and that's something that can be borne in mind by the electorate when it comes to the next opportunity to elect or not elect Dane English, that would be up to people but they should be empowered with the information by this independent independent ethics uh, watchdog that we have, SIPO. But instead, they're they're not they're going to be denied that because SIPO refuses to investigate. Mm. And is it that they're not going to investigate because uh, he's put his affairs in order as such since then? No. The only other thing they say, apart from the reference to not of sufficient gravity, they say following inquiries by the secretary to the commission, the commission noted the Deputy English had completed his annual declarations in line with the Commission's guidelines on compliance with the provisions in the Ethics in Public Office Act. I, I'm not exactly sure what that relates to be honest. Um, I saw that when Damien English resigned, he claimed that the House is in some way, isn't used for any other purpose than for his family. And the implication was that maybe maybe there was someone living in there, maybe he was using it. But I know the Irish Times called to the House, there was nobody living there, appears, the ditch called the house, it appears to all intents and purposes that the house is empty, in which case you, you can't rely on this defence. Um, it, it, it's not, you don't have to declare your property just if you're renting it out. Mm. You have to declare it if it's not your family home. There's a distinction because it, 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 there's no suggestion that he was renting this out or anything like that, but it was left empty. And once it's left empty, once it's not your family home, it isn't covered by the exemption. Um, but it seems that what's happened here is that Sippo asked Damien English. Damien English said, oh, no, it's in some way used by my family. And then Sippo just said, OK, well, that looks fine to us. And, you know, in, in the whole process, there's no possibility of mm. me to dispute that. They don't go back to me to say, this is what he says. What do you say? Do you have any evidence? They don't. It's completely untransparent. There's no appeals process. This is just the end of the matter. Sippo won't be investigating. Nice. Uh, we don't know, uh, is what you're saying, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and nobody knows, uh, but it would be very easy to find out, wouldn't it? Um, it just requires Damien English to tell people. Uh, he hasn't said really anything uh, since uh, this was reported by the ditch and he was forced to resign. Exactly. Um, and that, that is a problem, you know, that something is serious enough, someone is forced uh, to resign. I think that was the appropriate outcome in this case. But then the public is left with a whole series of questions that remain unanswered and that they don't get that information um, before uh, the next election. And it also highlights a, a related issue that um, once it's currently a big problem with the ethics legislation, that once someone is no longer a TD, they're not subject to any of this at all. Even if they did like a load of unethical stuff, corrupt practices in the past, when they were a TD, then it's uncovered. Once they're once they're gone, once they're not a TD, they're, they're not, SIPO can't uh, do anything uh, about it. SIPO also can't initiate uh, investigations uh, by itself. Um, it clearly doesn't have the resources to do these things in a timely manner. I mean, it's now June. I think I got this response in the middle of May, um, but the complaint was made in January, and this is the you know initial preliminary decision. Mm. And so it all points to an inadequate and largely toothless ethics watchdog that we have. Nice. Um, Damien English hasn't said anything um, uh, uh, worth mentioning uh, other than uh, he's been through a lot and he is going to run in the next uh, election and people will understand what he had to go through. Um, But his party has uh, really 
circled the wagons, haven't they? Uh, they they haven't said they support him. They haven't said that they don't support him. Um, I think the Taoiseach uh, said that he wasn't going to discuss internal party matters uh, on the floor of uh, Leinster House, uh, which may have given the impression that there was some disciplinary process in place. Uh, but there seems to be no consequence or sanction whatsoever for Damien English, who lied to Meath County Council in order to build a house um, which is not grave enough for the standards in public office uh, to investigate. Uh, but Fine Gael um, seem quite happy uh, that Damien English continues as a TD representing that party, a, a liar representing Fine Gael, uh, on a salary of €110,000. That's, that's a lot for people to take in, in County Mead, especially where the housing list is, yeah. is as big as it is and where people are struggling to make ends meet, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, and it speaks to a culture where I, certainly some of these politicians think that the rules don't apply to them and apply to people. Um, and you're, you're kind of, when they're forced to resign as minister, you're kind of meant to feel sorry for them and think that's terrible they work there. You're hounded out of office. It's kind of the language that mm. they like to use around these things. Uh, exactly ignoring the points that you are making, that they remain as PDs on very, very substantial, handsome uh, salaries. Um, and in this case, they even avoid, you know, any investigation into what is a, a breach. I mean, you know, if you lie on a social welfare application, um, you can face fine or you can face uh, prison time. Um, these are serious matters. Um, it is kind of important that our uh, politicians aren't engaged in the breaches of these things. We have ethics legislation for a reason. Um, but I, I think there's a tendency now by Fine Gael in particular to just circle the wagons on these things and by this government in general. Like if you look at the approach they took to, to Niall Collins, they've decided yeah. they're not going to allow any further people uh, to be forced to resign. And the way to do it is, is not to ensure that there isn't unethical or corrupt, corrupt behaviour. It's simply to ensure that they don't face any questioning mm. and, and so that stuff doesn't come into the public domain. Right. I'm sure Damien English is working very hard in his constituency. I imagine uh, that he represents people and advocates on behalf of people quietly behind closed doors uh, but to some extent you'd have to wonder if Mead West has lost one of its representatives given that uh, a TD on €110,000 can't speak publicly to any reporter uh, because he'll be asked yes. about how he lied in a planning application to the local authority uh, I don't know uh, if it would be any different because he's now a backbencher, but he hasn't spoken in the doll since. There is no accountability. There is no representation. That's that's a very good point. Um, I, I, I didn't know that he was fully avoiding any media whatsoever. I had certainly hadn't noticed him on, on any media. Um, but that is uh, interesting that he's not able to advocate publicly for his constituents because he doesn't want to be asked about his own personal um, situation. So it's definitely his constituents are mm. losing out as a consequence of that lack of uh, Well, I don't believe he has. I know that he didn't respond to, to calls from the Sunday Independent, which didn't come as a, as a surprise to us because uh, we've been asking uh, as local radio station for him to speak mm -hmm. to us for some time. Uh, and at one stage we even asked for a written statement on the north-south interconnector, you know, the upgrade of the electricity yeah. line uh, because it's such a big, huge issue locally. We don't know what Damien English's position is on the government's uh, acceptance that it will proceed now. Uh, we know the other representatives in the region and what their position is, but 
we don't know how one individual TD feels about a government decision. Yeah, I, I agree. That that's a real problem, um, and I think it's a problem that is confounded by the refusal of Sipo to investigate. Um, like I, I don't think Sipo should be able to kick someone out of the doll. I don't think we should give that power to a body like Sipo because that power should reside in you know, the people who elect them. But the people who elect TDs should be empowered by being given the information. So whenever you have unethical behaviour, breaches of the ethics legislation happening, you should have investigations by Zippo. Those event- the outcome of those investigations should be published so that people can make their own mind up at the following election. Okay. Uh, what do you think will happen next, or is that it? Does this draw a line under the controversy for Damien English, for now at least, or until the timing of uh, the next election? Unfortunately, it probably does, and um, that's the, the truth of it. There is no appeal mechanism to a decision of SIPO. Uh, the only thing you can possibly do, which is a very uh, expensive process, is to try and take a judicial uh, review of SIPO's decision on the grounds that they haven't uh, taken it uh, properly. Um, so there is nowhere else, really, unfortunately, for this to go. And I know that actually the Labour Party did make a complaint to an Oireachtas committee about Damien English, but I don't know where that is at. So that might be the final kind of place where something might might happen or might emerge, but I, I suspect it's, it's it's kind of the end of the road for us. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us Thanks, uh, this morning. That is uh, People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Now to this uh, story that you've been hearing uh, already today about a a man who's been fined €1,000 for using a metal detector to search for archaeological objects uh, at a court in Dundalk uh, in breach of offences uh, under Section 4.1 of uh, the National Monuments Amendment Act 1994. Maeve Sikora is Keeper of Antiquities at the National Museum of Ireland. A very good morning to you, Maeve. Thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this, uh, for those of us uh, not used to these type of uh, stories, is a very curious story. Uh, can I begin by asking you about metal detectors? Uh, is it illegal to own a metal detector? Uh, good morning, Michael, and thanks so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to make your listeners aware of the legislation, um, particularly the National Monuments Act, as you mentioned. So so the issue here is that metal detecting to search for artefacts is a licensable activity in the state here. So that means you must have a license from the Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage. Is it Heritage. difficult to get a license? Um, it's an application process, but really um, the legislation... In Ireland, um, the idea is that we protect our archaeological heritage mm. and that, you know, when you're searching for something, it's done in a way with per researchers at the core of it um, and it's regulated. So that means, you know, that it's being done with with the questions, mm. you know, of archaeological research in mind. So you're looking to answer a particular question about how something was found in a, in a particular place. Okay, you don't get a, a, a licence willy-nilly. It's not like someone who's been thinking for a long time. I'd love to have one of them. I'd say they're great crack. Uh, that's not a basis. You'd have to have sound uh, research reasons uh, for applying for licence if you are to be given one. 
I su- yeah, I suppose mm. the thing to, to, to remember is that, you know, people who've ever seen any archaeological excavation on TV or anything will know it's very, it's very carefully done. And the reason for that is to allow us to understand the maximum about our past. You know, our, our, our sort of portable heritage in Ireland is a public resource. Mm. It's owned by everybody and it should be available and accessible for everybody to enjoy. So and really that's the message we want to get across, that these okay. things are regulated for the benefit of the public. Ultimately. I, I, I can understand that. I'm sure most people will. Uh, but yeah. I, I, I was surprised by the story and that somebody was fined for it. And equally surprised, I have to say, that the National Museum of Ireland is monitoring what's happening on social media on an ongoing basis? Yeah, so I suppose our, our role under the National Monuments Act is to, we're responsible for receiving reports of discovery of artefacts all around the country and you know, Michael, the thing to say there is that the vast majority of our interactions with the public are really, really positive. People are wonderful. They report fines and we have long-term interactions with families over generations to do with fines. So, you know, um, reporting to us is generally a very, very positive experience, I would say, for people. Mm. Um, but it's our job, actually, to respond to reports, and that includes whether it's a phone call, email, letters, or people actually turning up here in Kildare Street at the front desk with a bag. You know, that happens too. Right. But obviously, social okay. media is something that yeah. people are using now, so, you know, the world mm. has changed in terms of how, how things are, are flagged or reported as such. Okay, and tell us what happened before this case ended up in Dundalk. Uh, you saw a number of items on social media. Yeah, so we've, we viewed a post um, which suggested that a number of significant artefacts had been found um, and it suggested that they may have been found using a metal detector. So we uh, contacted the Guardian and Dundalk who were absolutely fantastic and investigated this um, and recovered or more than 60 artefacts um, including silver medieval coinage um, and also recovered a detection device. So I just want to thank the Guardian and Dundalk who were just absolutely fantastic um, in working with us in this case also. Okay. Silver medieval coinage and part of a medieval horse harness. Uh, They sound like they would be high in value. Well, the value value really is uh, for us and for anybody living here in the state is their archaeological value. So what they tell us about our past, about our ancestors, how people were living, uh, where people were living, what they were using. So horses, for example. So that's really the value um, is just understanding, you know, understanding our past and allowing us to to do that, I suppose, in a scientific manner. Mm. And going along with a metal detector, I take it is not what you would consider to be a scientific manner. Um, we see people being very careful trying to uh, remove uh, items when they are discovered. Exactly. That's exactly it. You know, so it's just you know, just for people, for the listeners to be aware that it's a regulated activity and the reason for that is that um, we, we want this to be done, searching to be done in a, in a scientific manner. So, you know, careful recording of associations. So with a metal detector, for example, it doesn't recover anything that's organic. So if, say, coins were found in a leather bag, the leather bag isn't going to be recovered, you know, in this way. So that's why... Um, that's why it's a regulated activity in this state and I should just say as well that there's a fantastic museum in Dundalk as well Louth County Museum mm. which has wonderful displays and it is also a great place for the public to access their, their heritage so just, just a plug for, for Brian in the museum as well there Very good, okay um, uh, Is it easy to find stuff <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, forgive my ignorance but is it easy to find stuff? I mean if you were to walk along in any town or village with a metal detector, would you come across items of interest, if not of value? 
Um, so in, in regards to a metal detector, well, obviously you need a license to do that. So mm. you're going to be, if you're doing it in a, in a regulated way, you're going, to be, you're going to have a particular question you want to ask. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes that can be, can be a useful tool if it's done in a, in a sort of a regulated fashion. Um, but the way people find artifacts in Ireland is, you know, uh, very diverse. So we had a, a seven-year-old boy found a flint arrowhead on a beach in Cork last summer. Um, and he was up with us and his family, you know, looking at other finds of, of uh, similar type. You find butter in bogs, for example, through peat harvesting. So there are many, many different ways in which artifacts are found and they become part of the story, part of the archive, um, which then is available to, to everybody to, to research, you know. So it's a really, really valuable thing that... Um, people do we we depend very much on the public and um, we rely on them to report things and to tell us how they found artifacts you know mm. so you know it, it's uh ireland's heritage is a, is, a, is a wonderful resource for everybody I, I would stress that and you know the public are a huge part of that story for us mm. okay very good uh, and uh, i'm sure you don't have to go too far uh, on occasion to find things and uh, that you come across people uh, who have things uh, that have been lying around the house for some time that they didn't realise. Absolutely, realize. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, our museum here in Kildare Street is full of things that were found by people, made by people, found mm. by people, reported by people. So we spend so much of our time interacting, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, really, Michael, with um, with members of the public. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. So we'd encourage people to use the museum service. We, we are a service um, and we're, we're open to the public for free. So people are entitled to come in and view their our shared heritage. Mm, okay. And if you find something, uh, the law is you must report it to the National Museum within 96 hours of its discovery. Uh, yes. uh, and you shouldn't be using a metal detector, obviously, uh, for the without crack. A license. Exactly. <laughs> without, yeah. without a license. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I can imagine that, uh, you know, it would be of appeal to some people, but uh, there's very good reason, uh, as you say, uh, for people not using it. And that's why you have to be licensed to use it. Thank you uh, indeed for explaining all of that to us and for joining us uh, this morning for that matter, Maeve. Thanks, Michael. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Maeve Sikora is uh, the Keeper of Antiquities at uh, the National Museum of Ireland. Let me bring you some more of uh, the comments that uh, have uh, been coming to us uh, this morning following uh, the conversation with Paul Murphy uh, uh, about Sippo's uh, decision not to investigate uh, Damien English lying on that application form to Mead County Council about uh, the house that he owns uh, that uh, he seemed to forget owning. Uh, Ellen in Ellen WhatsApping is saying, is it any wonder that people don't trust our politicians? Damien English is another one lying and gets away with it and still being paid by the taxpayer. Only in Ireland, Ellen says, could this happen. Thanks, Ellen. Uh, it's a, a significant salary uh, and worth repeating because I think people think he lost his job. You'd be forgiven for thinking Damien English lost his job, seeing as how we haven't seen uh, sight nor sound of him. Uh, we haven't had sight nor sound of him since uh, he was disgraced out of office. Uh, but uh, he, he remains employed as a TD, paid by the taxpayer around €110,000 a year. Uh, we'd Tom in touch saying, Michael, those fat cats in offices sit 
online and watch and Joe Soap who actually gets off their arses to go out and actually physically look for these things finds uh, this stuff and they have 0% rights uh, or uh, uh, they've no uh, claim to the monetary value of them. Ireland uh, says Tom. Uh, well I hope uh, Tom uh, you've heard the argument from the National Museum of Ireland and as to why uh, there is concern about people doing that um, that they'll <laughs> have their own ways of doing it and that you uh, risk uh, damaging stuff. Uh, we'd uh, another text then from somebody who says owning your own house is not right uh, or it, it, it's something we should all have but it, it's not right or uh, caller says that Damien English had two houses and the Joe Soap can't get a council house uh, on their own land. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that and thanks to everybody who's been in, in touch with us uh, today. That's where our time runs out in this once again for today. Marco O'Driscoll researched the programme. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme. That's tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie